All right, you guys are going to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. And we are continuing our series called Heal. And the big, question, the big question we're trying to answer for this series, we talked about this the last few weeks, is how do we heal from sin and from being sinned against? And so I want to, I know we've had a couple of weeks off from the series, so I want to just recapture the reason why we're doing this series, because I want to make sure you're focused on this today. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So in, in my years as a youth pastor, um, I've noticed something about the students I work with. I've noticed something about many of you that um, we see a lot of really difficult situations as a youth pastor. I've got a front row seat to a lot of sin and a lot of pain, um, and I've seen it for the last uh, 10 years or so. And we see students struggling with all kinds of sin issues. We see students being sinned against in some really horrific ways. Um, I can't begin to tell you the stories I've heard from some of you that have shared things with me about families you come from, friends that have wronged you, people that have um, crossed you. And so a few years back, like I would get phone calls from, from moms and dads who would say, you know, my son or daughter wants nothing to do with the church. They really hate the idea of church, but they're having these major issues in life, whether it's um, you know, suicidal thoughts, depression, cutting, um, sexual um, issues like addiction, those kinds of things. And so we started to see these, these issues arise, and we, we, we started thinking, well, I don't feel like we do a good job of addressing these kinds of things in our normal Sunday and Wednesday program. We just don't do a good job of that. And so how can we begin to like help that kind of student um, walk through some of the pain and, and, and whatnot of life. And so we developed this thing called Life Hurts, God Heals. It met on Tuesday nights here at the Outback. Did it for four years in a row. And we had some okay turnout for that. We just felt like that let's find a way to help a kid who's going through some really difficult things. But this is what it began to feel like to me, though. It began to feel like to me that we had taken this kind of kid and said, okay, you're a special case. We're going to put you over here in this other program to get the real help that you need. And I began to really wrestle with that. And I started thinking, well, why can't we just be honest and and admit that whatever sin struggles you guys deal with on a regular basis need to be dealt with in the same way that we deal with those things on Tuesday nights, right? Like there shouldn't be this other category of sanctification. There shouldn't be this other category of, well, this will help the normal church kid, and this will help the unchurched kid. So I began to feel convicted about that. And so um, we realized that it doesn't matter what kind of sin you struggle with or how you've been sinned against, the remedy is the same. The remedy is the gospel. And so um, wherever you find yourself this morning, we're doing this series because for some of you, You've gone through some really, really tough things, and it might take a bit more time for the gospel to do its work in your life, but we still believe that the gospel has to do its work. That's really what's going to change you. There's not some other way of change or growth. It's going to have to be you growing deeper and deeper into the gospel. And so let me just show you just real quickly how this this plays out, I think, in life. Um, So if you're someone who's gone through depression at some point in your life, then you're going to have to begin to understand that the gospel is going to be what pulls you out of that ultimately. I mean, you could read some book online, you could read something you hear about, but ultimately 
what's going to really grow you and change you, what's going to ultimately give you hope if you're depressed is going to be Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you're someone who, I've gotten phone calls from parents saying, you know, my daughter or my son, they're cutting on themselves. Like, why would a teenager do that? The parents are confused about it. And what, what you notice about people that do those kinds of things, why is it that they're wounding themselves? What would cause someone to go to that place? And sometimes there's this, there's this idea that they feel like they need to be punished for something. Or it's a way of punishing themselves so that they feel. And the gospel, even for someone like that, can meet you and remind you that you don't have to wound yourself. Someone's already been wounded for you. And, and so the gospel begins to take root in your life and your heart. And you begin to realize that that's going to be what changes you and what grows you. For someone who's been abused... You've got to understand that the gospel points us to a God who is a God of, of justice. And if you're having issues with forgiveness and grace, the gospel reminds us that, that we serve a God who is like that, but we also serve a God who is just and wrathful against sin. Helpful reminders for us, for those who have gone through these kinds of things. And so wherever you are this morning, we want, to, we want the series to grow you and to deepen you in your understanding of the gospel. And this is going to be how Jesus changes you as you grow in your, in your understanding of those things. So I want to review for you very quickly just um, the last few weeks. The first week we talked about the problem, the problem of sin. And this might surprise you, but the, the, the big problem in the world is not just your parents, or not just that friend that wronged you, or this person or that person. That's not the problem. The problem is sin, and everyone has that problem. And so you can't just look at the world and say, okay, that's, that person's the issue, that person's the issue, he hurt me, or she hurt me, or he harmed me. You can't see it as that. You've got to see it as, no, sin is the underlying issue that affects all of us. That is the problem. That's the big problem. And so we went from there talking about the remedy, the remedy being the gospel, the good news, this announcement that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Messiah. We put our faith and trust in him, his work for us on the cross, and this is the gospel. We don't put our faith in our good works. We put our faith in the work already done for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the remedy. We went from there and talked about the fight of faith. Uh, Kim Ron's been share with you guys about the instruments of grace that God gives us, community, the church, God's word, prayer. These are things that God gives us, instruments of his grace, so that we can grow in our walk with him. And then we talked about suffering from sin. We talked about how um, many of you have suffered as a result of someone sinning against you. And how is it that the gospel releases you to forgive people like that in your life in ways in which you've been wronged so you can move past that and live out a grace-filled and mercy-filled life? Then uh, we talked, Jonathan Darty came two weeks ago. He talked about fighting against temptation, namely sexual temptation. And so he shared his story, and he's got a very powerful story. He stood on this stage and talked about that topic. And so, um, honestly, I did not want to... Um, let that topic go by without me also having a shot at the same topic because I really feel like this topic, sexual sin, is one that um, is so huge for our culture but also for where you're at in life today. So um, 
if you guys really thought I would just, you know, sort of pawn that off on him and me not talk about it as well, you were dead wrong, okay? So we're going to talk about that again today. This is part two of what Jonathan talked about two weeks ago. And so um, my first statement this morning is going to shock you because I believe that God's initial intent for you, for many of us, was to be married at a fairly young age, all right? Now, before you go off and say, hey, mom, dad, Dave, I should be married right now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that I think God's initial intent was for people to get married at a pretty early age. Now, here's why I say that, because if you look at creation, we see that God does things on purpose. He does not do things haphazardly. And so let me ask you this question. Why would God have your body go through changes at the age of, say, 14, 15, where you can now make babies, okay, and, and then not actually intend for you to get married fairly soon after that, all right? Let me explain this to you this morning before you freak out on me here. Um, I'm not saying you should be getting married like in eighth grade or something crazy like that. I'm not saying that because, listen, some of those guys can't even, they still have high-pitched voices. Like, can you imagine that wedding ceremony? Like, their voice cracking, as they say, I do. Like, that just would not, that would not go well. You know, um, let's just be honest. Like, that time of life is a really strange, weird time of life, is it not? I mean, you've got, when I was in eighth grade, um, we had this really evil English teacher. And, and she made us read um, Shakespeare out loud in front of the class. So what she would do is we'd open the books up, and she'd have each student go around and, and read, like, five lines of Shakespeare, Right? And as a guy in eighth grade, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, she's just being mean because she knows our voices are going to crack, right? And so it gets to the guys, and the guys are like, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And everyone's cracking up, and I'm like, she's like the meanest teacher alive. What is wrong with her? And so it's a really awkward, weird time of life um, around that age. And uh, it's just embarrassing. I mean, it, I don't think, I'm not saying that we should add marriage to that embarrassing part of life, to that equation. So I'm not saying you should be getting married that early. Um, I'm just saying that I think God intended it earlier than what we see today. So, um, like, for example, do, do we really think this was God's plan? Do we really think that God's plan was, okay, I'll have them go through uh, puberty to age like 13, 14, 15, then I'll have them go like 10, 15 years of just sheer torture, lots of awkward school dances, uh, and finally when they're 32, they can find someone on FarmersOnly.com. Do we really think, you've seen the commercials, haven't you? Hey, let me ask you this, is that song stuck in your head? That song gets stuck in my head, I can't. Stand that commercial, yes. Um, but here's, here's the reality, listen, listen. Speaking of farming, so um, not too long ago, our culture, our, our world was founded based around um, the agrarian culture, the farming culture, and so essentially if, as long as you could like, you know, grow some food in a garden and, and build a hut, and, um, and that sort of thing, you're pretty much, you can provide for a family. Like this is, it didn't take much education 
to be able to provide for a wife and some kids. It was hard work, but it wasn't a whole lot of education. I think my grandfather, he was a farmer actually. He had, I think, an eighth grade education. Dropped out to work on a farm. So this is what many people did. They would, they would just go to work and they'd work hard, blue-collar workers, and they would provide for their family any way that they could. And so that was not too long ago. But then society changes with what's called the Industrial Revolution and the Technology Revolution, which is more recent today. And so with that comes a, a change in the need for education. So if you're going to provide for a family, you've got to be able to have a decent education and provide for yourself, your family. Now you've got to finish high school. Many go to college, post-college, graduate work. So for the time of like 15 until you get married is often 10 to 15 years of waiting until you start that part of your life. So you guys are caught in this weird in-between world. That's a fairly recent phenomenon. And your bodies are ready for sex, you're ready for relationships, you feel ready for relationship, but many of you probably won't get married for another 10, maybe even 15 years. Do the average age, I think it's like, I think it's like 27 for men, maybe 26 for females, and it keeps going up, 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 and up the further we, along we progress in our culture. So um, you've got some waiting to do, many of you. That's just the reality of it. So here's why I tell you all of this, listen. I tell you all of this for three reasons. Because I want you to know this morning that God is not a killjoy. God is, like many of you are thinking that, okay, God, you're going to make me wait until 27, 28 years old till I'm married. I've got to wait that long. And, and you kind of blame it on God. And what I would say to you is the, the cultural situation that we're in right now, that wasn't really God's initial plan, I don't think. It's what we have, and because of technology, you have things like an iPhone, so congratulations, but what, that, what comes with that is I don't think you should be getting angry at God for you having to wait that long till marriage, because part of that's just our cultural condition that we're in. That's just where we are today. Number two, I tell you this because you've got to be extremely vigilant in staying pure before marriage. Because of that 10, 15-year window, you've got to be extremely vigilant at staying pure in your life before marriage. And it's going to take a lot of prayer and a lot of accountability and a lot of intentionality on your part to make sure that you don't fall into temptation in this area of your life. I tell you this also for a third reason. Marriage is not going to solve your lust issue. It's just not. Many of you think to yourself, you think, yeah, well, you know, right now um, I'm 16, 17 years old. I mean, there's pornography, um, and I can look at that until I get married. Once I get married, it's going to be just, you know, it's going to go away, and that is not reality. Whatever areas of sexual sin that you struggle with now, you will take that into your marriage. That is not how the body and soul work. You don't just say, okay, addiction no more, now I'm married. Because you've been living a jacked up view of sexuality up until the time of marriage. It's not going to jack up your marriage. You don't think that? So I tell you this because marriage is not going to solve the lust issue in your life. 
And so I want you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When Jonathan spoke about this two weeks ago, it really kind of hit me as he's talking on the stage. I don't want this to be like, okay, this is our annual, you know, sex and pornography talk. And, and just have you take it in and then walk out the door and, and that's it. But I want you to know from me this morning that I was convicted about how casually many of us take sexual sin, especially at your age. I know some are going to think um, this is all going to get better later on. You're not going to have those lust issues and so on. But let me tell you that, that, that as you go along in life, you've got to understand this requires great work of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your sanctification, as you walk through these kinds of waters in your life. And so I want to just, um, uh, just remind you this morning that um, if you're walking in sexual sin right now, you will take it into your marriage if you do not allow Christ to do his sanctifying work in your life and you don't allow him to change you, even as you're a teenager. I also want to make sure that um, as we talked this morning about how serious God takes this kind of sin, um, I don't want my, my tone of seriousness about this kind of sin to, if you're someone in the room who has dealt with this in the past or even currently, and you're feeling a lot of shame about this, and you confess it, you've, you've given it to God, you've confessed it, you've turned from that, I don't want this morning to be about adding to shame this morning. I don't want this to be about oh man, Dave really brought up this morning about sexual sin and now I just feel like, I feel horrible. I mean, here's the deal. If you're still living and walking in it, then my goal this morning is to bring conviction. That, that is the goal this morning. But if you're someone who has repented, you've turned to Christ, you're no longer walking and living in that kind of sin, everyone struggles, but if you're, still, if you're, not, if you're no longer walking and living in that kind of sin, then I want you to know for me this morning that my goal tonight, is, this morning, is not to bring shame to you. My goal is not to bring shame to you this morning. So I don't want my serious tone about it to make you think that my goal is, is shaming you. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 15. Here's what it says. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So right out of the gate, a nice, tame, easy passage to start off with, um, you know, no controversy. And so I want you to know from, from Paul's culture, this is not the same kind of prostitution that we see today. I mean, we see prostitution, you think Vegas, you think New Orleans, you think bad, seedy places that... Um, these things go on, but this is not what's being addressed in the church in Corinth. What was happening in Corinth is Corinth had this, this uh, temple to this goddess called Aphrodite, and people would go there. So part of their culture was there were over like a thousand prostitutes at this temple or in this, and around this temple, and part of worship, we're going to get graphic this morning, part of worship in Corinth was to go to the temple and have sex with a prostitute as part of their worship ceremonies to Aphrodite, right? I mean, can, can you imagine living in this kind of culture where that's part of the religious practice, go to the temple and meet with a prostitute. That's just part of what you do in that world. And so you can imagine as people are coming to know Christ and some are like, well, 
I'm a Christian, but I guess I can still go down to the temple and meet with a prostitute. And Paul's having to come alongside him and say, okay, guys, um, life, Christianity 101, don't have sex with prostitutes, right? He's having to educate them on, no, that's not how you treat your body. That's not how you're to relate to other people. That's not how you're to relate to your sexuality. And so he's got to start at a very baseline level with these people, which actually kind of encourages me in a way because I look at that and I go, man, man, Paul had it rough, right? Like that's what, what a hard place to start. But he's trying to let them see, like, let's, let's start basic 101 here um, in your area of sexuality. So then we, we see the word prostitute in Scripture. We think of, uh, um, that, that sounds extreme to us. Uh, so two weeks ago, Jonathan Doherty stood on this stage. And Jonathan told you two weeks ago that he, when he was walking in sin in this area of his life, that he had sex with prostitutes when he was walking through that part of his life. I mean, really shocking stuff, right? Read that verse and you go, that's shocking. Hear Jonathan's story and you think, that's shocking. And the temptation that some of you are going to have is you're going to think, well, Dave, I mean, yeah, I struggle in these areas, but that's extreme. That's shocking. That's, that's not really where I struggle. And you're going to think, that's not me. The stuff I'm doing isn't that extreme. And I want to just let you know this morning that, um, that anything, Outside of, se- outside of marriage, anything sexual outside of marriage is sinful. And I mean anything. I know whenever we say sex, you're thinking of the actual physical act. I mean a lot more than that because the word in the Greek in Scripture is actually pornea, which covers all areas of sexual immorality. Pornea, we get the word pornography from that. And so it's kind of like a junk drawer term just to mean anything and everything that's sexuality related that's not in the confines of marriage that is sinful and what I mean when I say that is I'm referring to anything like um, you know giving pictures of someone on your cell phone of yourself that's sexual getting physical with your boyfriend or girlfriend I mean I'm not going to talk to you this morning about just the continuum of the physical relationship but many much of what people do before marriage is sexual in nature even the stuff that you're thinking about that's like well that's not really yeah much of it is you know it is let's just be honest about it that's what's happening there if it wasn't here's the deal if it wasn't really sexual in nature then i'm not sure you'd really want to do it right that's that's what kind of draws you to it because god designed you that way and so some of you start down that pathway and think well you know it's not really sex not sin that's wrong. Anything sexual outside of marriage is sinful, and I mean anything, anything. And so the problem, the problem that we run into, guys, is that in our minds, you and I have these degrees of sexual sin in our minds, don't we? We think of like, okay, if there's a big like spectrum, we would say, okay, sex with a prostitute is like at the other end of the spectrum. That's like the worst thing you can imagine, right, I would think? But as you go down the spectrum, most of us would say, well, you know, sex with someone that you're engaged to, I mean, it's wrong, but we kind of understand. Sex with someone that you're dating really, really seriously, also wrong, but again, we understand why they would do something like that. And so we we go down the line, and we would probably put 
what Paul's talking about down here and what many of you struggle with down here with like these degrees of wrongness. And I want to tell you this morning that Paul addressed this sin because that's what the culture was doing at that time. That's why he talks about it. But do you think if Paul was talking to a group of teenagers like yourselves that just was struggling in areas of like pornography or um, sex with someone they're dating seriously or sex with a fiance, do you think he might also say the same thing about those sins too? I think he would. I don't think he would soften his stance because, okay, guys, I understand you're in a relationship. I don't think he would do that. I think he would say, no, it's, it's still sinful just the same. God does not see sexual sin in degrees of wrongness. And so look at verse 16. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute or he who's joined to a person they're engaged to or he who's joined to a person they're dating really, really seriously or he who's joined to a person who is at a party with them becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so what he's saying is that when you are sexual with someone, you become one with them. This is not just a physical act. This is emotional. This is spiritual. And so in our world, people say things like, you know, it's just sex. That's all it was. It's just sex. It's never just sex. It's never just physical. Sex is more than the physical act. Sex is emotional. It is spiritual. And so I want you to follow this. What Paul is saying is that when someone becomes a Christian, they become one with Christ. And when you are sexual with someone, and I mean sexual in any way with them, you become like one with them. And so um, one of the questions I get from people all the time, from students especially, is, okay, well, um, what is okay to do while you're dating someone? And again, I'll remind you that I think many of the things that you see as okay, I would put in a sexual category and say, you should not do this until you're married. Right? And so, so because here's what happens. Even if you don't go all the way, you're going to at least agree with me that there is a certain level of oneness that you feel with that person in spite of not going all the way, right? We'd agree with that. We'd agree with that. And so there's an element of oneness that happens with this person, and God creates sexual oneness to be expressed after two people have been joined together in marriage. The idea is that you get married, and then the answer is yes, you can do whatever you want sexually, um, with that person, but many of us get this reversed. We want to try out the physical oneness first before we commit to a marriage oneness. And when you and I do this, this jacks everything up. This messes everything up in how God created us. This is why when you cross physical lines with someone and then you break up, which almost always happens at your age, this is why it's really, really awkward, right? Like, just think about this. I'll be honest with you. I want to be straight with you this morning, especially about this topic. Um, when I was in high school and college, I dated a, um, a couple of different girls. And 
a couple of those, we started to head down the physical road, right? And I will tell you that the ones that I went down that road with, um, once we broke up, things are extremely awkward. The girls that I dated that I did not go down that road with, the ones that I tried to respect in that way, things were not nearly as awkward with them because you know why? They knew they could, I knew I could respect her. She knew she could respect me. It was tough. It was kind of awkward, but it wasn't the same level with the other, other couple of girls. And I'll tell you, I've seen, I've seen my own sin in this area. And if you want to sit there and ask the question, well, Dave, you know, how far is too far? How far can I go? What can I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend? I'll, I'll say to you, you're asking the wrong question. Because the questions you should be asking are, how can I protect purity? How can I protect her? How can I protect myself? How can I guard her? Paul says, either, I think it's 1 Timothy, he talks about this. He says, he says, treat the women with respect. He talks about, treat them as sisters. He says, treat the young woman as sisters, right? So if you're looking for how should I treat my girlfriend, like your sister, protect her. Guard her. Think about this. For you guys in the room, if a guy tries to put a move, you want to beat him up, right? You want to beat the guy up? That's how you'd want to respond. So think of it in those terms. Like, I want to protect her. I want to guard her. These are the questions we should be asking when it comes to these kinds of things. Not what can I get away with. Not what can I do and not cross the line into obvious sin. I mean, what kind of a motive is behind that question anyway? There's a lot of selfishness behind that question when we ask that kind of question. And so um, look at what he's saying here. He's saying, how can you be joined to Christ and joined to sin at the same time? As Christians, we cannot say, okay, I'm a Christian and I'm joined to Christ, I'm one with Christ, but then also be one with someone else in sin at the same time. Not saying you're not a believer, I'm just saying that you cannot live those two lives. You can't live those two lives. So the question becomes, how should you and I respond to this kind of temptation? Verse 18, answer the questions for us. Look at verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So I always love that, that verse. Verse eight, It's a very vivid picture of just running away from someone, right? And sometimes that needs to happen literally. And sometimes, like, if you're in a moment of temptation and you're with someone, like, you literally need to get out of the situation. Run. Run away, right? And I think of Joseph, Potiphar's wife. What did he do? Did he just stay in debate? Did he stay and negotiate? Did he stay and talk it out? No, it was he ran, he got out of there. The only way to f- you can fight temptation in this area of your life is to flee. Now, this doesn't mean just flee, like literally run. It also means things like, hey, maybe I need to get rid of my internet, my iPhone, my iPad. Maybe I need to not be around this person, this guy, or this girl. Maybe you've got a friend. Like This happens, I know. Maybe you've got a friend who, um, like you're just friends, but opposite, opposite sex friendship, and maybe you just, y'all just struggle physically being around. Maybe it's just one of those things that there's a temptation for you. 
Maybe you don't need to be around that person if they're going to um, try to cause you to stumble in that area of your life. In those ways, you might need to flee that situation in your life. You can never stay and fight in this area of your life because eventually you are going to lose that battle. We are not strong enough to withstand that kind of temptation. In fact, in Colossians, Paul talks about, he says, you've got to put sin to death. You've got to find ways in your life where you can put sin to death and flee that kind of temptation in your life. And I think here's the issue that I want to address this morning is that I really do believe this. I don't think many of us take sexual sin very seriously. We just don't. I think partly because we know that God wired us that way, and we know that there's a part of that that's a good thing, and it is good. God created us that way. And so I think because of that reality, we tend to not take it that seriously. We tend to look at it and say, well, that's just how God created me, so I'm just going to look. I'm going to look in lust. I'm going to get physical here, get physical there. And you kind of give yourself a pass on purity. You kind of give yourself a pass on, well, that's just God designed me that way. It's his fault. And I really think that especially in this area of our life, you've got to take sexual sin seriously in the same way that God takes sexual sin. The second statement in this passage is kind of confusing. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person uh, sins against his own body. So what does, that, what does that statement mean? You see, the Corinthians, they believed that all of their sins were outside of their body. They had this idea that, um, that their body and soul were like separate entities. They thought that, okay, my body can sin, and it's not really going to affect me. It's not really going to affect who I am. If, if my body does this, it doesn't really matter what my body does. In our culture, we hear the lie of, you know, it's my body. I can do whatever I want. It's the same lie, just a different time. Same lie, different culture. And so Paul is reminding them that every sexual sin is ultimately connected to you, to your body, to your soul. Like you can't break yourself up into little pieces like that and say, no, it affects me here, but not over here. It affects all of you, your entire being. Look at verse uh, 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is Paul saying? He's saying the body that you have, it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Again, this is where our culture feeds you lies. They would say, no, it's, it's my body. I can do what I want. This verse says, no, if you're a believer, even if you're not a believer, the body doesn't belong to you. You're bought with a price. You don't belong to you. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit to reside in, to dwell in. This means that it's not just you living in there. You think about this. Your body is a temple for God. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit to reside in. It's not just yours. It doesn't just belong to you. And verse 20, I think, shows the great value that Jonathan talked about two weeks ago. Remember the $20 bill demonstration that he gave you guys um, 
the, the great value that God places on you. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Some of you need to let that truth sink in this morning. I think that if, you're, if you deal with shame and condemnation from the enemy this morning, that you need to hear this this morning, that you were bought with a price. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let that truth sink into your soul this morning as you deal with that kind of guilt and shame that the enemy is accusing you of. And so, yes, this morning my goal is to see, um, for us to see how serious God takes sin, especially sexual sin, but I don't want to just leave you hanging there. I also want you to see how we change in this area of our life. I want you to see um, a way that we change. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5.16. And here's the ways. Let me just show you the ways in which we try to change, I think. One of the ways I think we try to change in our life is the just say no method. You hear it your whole life. Just say no. Just say no, right? When it comes to drugs, just say no. When it comes to sex, just say no. Just don't do it. And that's all you hear. But this falls short because it doesn't really deal with the heart issues, the heart desires that the, the reasons behind what you do. So just say no is never going to work fully. The just work hard method. Just try real hard. Just try to control yourself, right? We hear that a lot. Or the, the third one, just let it happen. I'm just going to sit on my couch and watch television and let God change me and just let it happen, Right? And so each one of these has like a little bit of a component of truth to it, but each one of these falls short because just say no never deals with the heart. Just work hard. If you succeed in that, you just get prideful about it. Just let it happen is way too passive. And so Galatians 5.16 shows us, I think, a much different way, a much better way for us to change. Look at Galatians 5.16. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Galatians 5.16 I think shows us a fourth way which is the biblical way. And it is walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the flesh. You will not gratify the sinful desires. And that might sound nice, but what does it actually mean? There's all these verses that you look at, and that's a good verse, but what does it actually mean? Here's what it means. It means that you live with the reality that you have the Holy Spirit living in you, giving you power to say no to sin. This means that you live with this reality that I've got the Holy Spirit dwelling and living within me, giving me power, empowering me to say no to sin. This means that when you walk in prayer and community and accountability and God's word, that temptation doesn't seem as overpowering to you when you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And so to walk in the spirit does not mean that you hyper-focus only on sexual sin. This is a mistake I think a lot of people make is they, they think, well, to defeat sexual sin temptation, I've got to like hyper-focus on this and make sure I defeat this dragon. And so what they do is like every prayer, every accountability conversation, every Bible reading is about that topic. And someone said to me one time, they said, um, a very simple demonstration, they said, if I tell you to not think about a blue parakeet, um, don't think about it, don't think about a blue, par- blue parakeet, what are you going to be thinking about? Right? You're thinking about that. So the idea that to walk in the spirit means that you try really hard, just try really hard not to sin in this area of your life, that falls short because you're going to hyper-focus on it and end up focusing way too much on that one sin. So the verse here is really cool because it says, what do you do? It says, walk in the spirit. You don't just try to avoid walking in the flesh. You actually walk in the spirit. And again, sounds great, but what does it actually mean? Here's what I think it means. It means you're actually getting caught up in trying to live out his mission not just trying to avoid sin all the time. Here's what I mean by that. In your day-to-day life, like picture yourself at school, you're walking the hallways of the school, and if you walk through the hallways normally and just say, okay, God, God, just give me victory over lust, temptation, like I don't want to focus on that today, I want to focus on you, and if you're just focusing on the negative, just the sin part, that's all you're focusing on, walking in the spirit might look like this. As you're walking the hallways of your school, you see that guy or that girl and that you want to reach out to in your class and you begin to pray for them, begin to pray that God would give you a chance to talk to them about Christ. You begin thinking and praying through your school and your campus, like how can I be on mission here? How can I live on mission for my campus? And you begin to think about and dwell on those kinds of things, things that God wants you to walk in. That's an element of walking in the Spirit. I can tell you that uh, in my times of going on mission trips when I was a a teenager in college and also in high school, that there were times when I was separated for a while from sources of temptation for me. And so for two full weeks, we are ministering the gospel, sharing Christ. And there was an element where you really sense this element of, because I'm being caught up in this other thing, walking in the spirit, I'm finding it easier to not fall into temptation in the flesh. And I know that every week is not a mission trip. I understand that. But there's an element to this, I think it's truthful, is that if you find yourself caught up in what God wants you to do, in what you're called to be, in living in community, living in surrender, living on mission, there's an element of that that I think begins to pull you away from walking in the flesh and makes temptation a bit more easy to deal with. This is how I think Christ changes us as we walk in the Spirit. And so as we close up here, I want to just remind you that um, if you've fallen into sin in this area of your life and you're dealing with shame, you think God can't forgive you. I want to tell you that you are right that God does take sin seriously. But the problem is that you don't take his grace seriously. You're right, your sin is serious, but his grace is also serious. The cross is also serious. And if you're here this morning and you're living and walking in sin, 
in this area of your life. Your issue is that you don't take your sin serious enough. You don't take sexual sin seriously enough. And the hope for you is that you would see this morning how serious God does take it, but then also don't let it drive you just to condemnation and, and shame, but let it drive you to the cross, understanding that you've also got to take his cross and his grace seriously as well because he offers you forgiveness this morning if you bring that to him. I know it's really late this morning, so if you guys can go ahead and discuss your questions, if you can pick out maybe three questions, that'd be great at your tables.